Hello from Austin. Welcome to episode 174 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Tuesday, July 21st, 2020. I'm Bobby Chesney. Who are you? I'm Steve Vladek. Um, I, I don't even know what to say. <laughs> your, your level of exasperation grows by the week, which is really saying something. <laughs> so um, um, people who know me well, I think, would, be, would, would tell you that one of the weirdest things about my personality is that the angrier I am, the quieter I get. Um, right, that that you know, I'm I'm usually a very boisterous and and loud and and I don't know, um, uh, lugubrious, right? Personality and exuberant, exuberant, right? And um, you know, when I get really really upset, I actually just get like totally. Um, no, lugubrious is sad. I actually get lugubrious. That's the that's the word I was looking for. Like I just I just oh, sort of get down. Laconic. We've got the, we've got the thesaurus out this morning. We really do. But I've uh, seen the proof of what you're saying in faculty meetings. I think <laughs> uh, I could neither confirm nor deny that there are faculty meetings where I just retreat into my shell and curse everybody under my breath. If only everyone in faculty meetings would adopt that posture. <laughs> it's one of these weird things where, like, I mean. I, this is, I think, folks who only know me through the podcast or professionally, I think, would be very surprised to hear this. But, like, most of my friends, I think, would actually describe me as fairly shy. Um, like, in new, in new and sort of um, um, different contexts, I'm usually, like, you know, hugging the wall, like, not, like, in the middle of the conversation. It's really just, like, in my professional orbit where I feel very comfortable and, and, and my, my, you know, crazy, uh, uh, boisterous, crazy person <laughs> self. So I don't know if I'm the mirror image of that. I definitely, I think I'm a little louder and more boisterous outside of professional settings, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. certainly in, in musical or social settings. Um, but either way, um, I think that this will be a podcast run of show that gives you occasion to be lugubrious. Uh, uh, indeed. We've got, we've got a trip to Portlandia to take. Trumplandia meets Portlandia. And it's not good. It's not bueno. We've got three subtopics there. We're going to talk about the Little Green Men operating in Portland, and we'll talk about the legal foundations, uh, or like thereof, for uh, DHS stepping into the spotlight for law enforcement. Uh, separate from that, but related to it, we'll talk about the uh, intelligence collection analog to that and what's going on with DHS intelligence collection. Uh, third, we're going to talk specifically about a uh, particular use of force, the shooting in the head of a protester uh, who was, by all appearances, not in the midst of taking an action that uh, warranted that level of violent response. So we'll talk a little bit about the use of force in this setting and the impact of that on First Amendment and other rights. I guess here we'd say Fifth Amendment as well, wouldn't we? Um, we will pivot from Portlandia to a, a brief note on an indictment in a, a gang narcotics related case involving MS-13. And we're going to do that because there was a lot of attention paid to the inclusion in the indictment of this group of MS-13 members of some terrorism related charges. And that drew a lot of attention. We'll sort of unpack that, explain how it, how it matters to the bigger picture or not. Um, and then we'll pivot over to the Ninth Circuit, check in with the courts, because we've got a big state secrets ruling in the Fasaga case, um, uh, a fierce dispute uh, amongst the judges of the Ninth Circuit. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if this one's going to 
I wonder if this is going to be the one that gets the Supreme Court to finally uh, revisit the state secrets privilege. Odds are high. And this time in the context of, of FISA, or, or maybe it's not in the context of FISA. That's part of the dispute. Well, and, and actually, and I, and I think as we'll talk about, it, I think part of what's going to make the, the case for cert in Fizaga especially compelling is the very similar issues the Fourth Circuit is currently sitting on in the Wikimedia appeal. So this, this seems like it's got a real shot at becoming a, a major a thing. Case. Yeah, it's going to be a thing. What else we got? The Hussein uh, case, Steve? All right, uh, a.k.a. Abu Zubaydah. So there were actually two big Ninth Circuit on uh, bonk denials yesterday. Um, at, the other thing I think that's interesting about both of those decisions, Bobby, is it shows the very quickly changing ideological nature of the Ninth Circuit, even though on bonk was denied, both of the votes were actually quite close. Um, I think, I think in, uh, in Fazaga, I think there were 10 dissenting. Judges. Oh, there were 12. Um, 12? 12? Jeez, uh, yeah. There were a lot. Um, <laughs> how, big, how many judges are on the Ninth Circuit? My goodness. Well, active judges, there are 29. Yep. Um, and so it takes, you know, to go on bonk, you need 15. Um, and so you could theoretically have a 15 to 14 on bonk vote in the Ninth Circuit. Um, yep. And if you include non-active judges, although they don't get to vote, I think it's actually like 48 or 49. Yeah, it's crazy. Yep. Um, All right. We also, we also have, um, speaking of court rulings, we have a huge ruling across the pond uh, from yeah. the Court of Justice of the European Union in Schrems II, um, basically invalidating Privacy Shield. Whoops. Yeah, this is, this is a big mess. We will, we will probably not do... Uh, full service to this uh, incredibly complex and important topic, but we'll at least check in with Shrimps too and do an initial uh, layout of it. Um, and then there was even a ruling in uh, Majid Khan's case. Uh, uh, the, the, right, the, uh, the Guantanamo Military Commission uh, for Majid Khan, um, a really interesting ruling where the trial judge um, held that thanks to a series of discovery abuses by the government, um, he's awarding Khan one year of administrative credit in whatever his final sentence is. So um, an unusual and unusually, to me, Bobby, sharp slap on the wrist um, for the government in the military commissions. Yep. And, you know, since we didn't, we didn't gather last week and uh, we didn't get a chance to note this as a result, I almost forgot about it because it's been a while. But I did want to, uh, from this platform, draw attention to the fact that I, as you know, Steve, I'm not, I'm not real... Uh, really one to wade into politics. And I don't consider this wading into politics. Uh, at least I try not to. Um, but I did uh, publicly become associated with an organization that I'm, I'm quite proud of, and that's Checks and Balances. And if you haven't heard of Checks and Balances, um, go, go find their website. It's, we're described as a group of, uh, group of lawyers who would traditionally have been described, in the past would have been described as conservative or libertarian lawyers who care especially about the rule of law, about uh, a variety of rule of law related values. I won't enumerate them all here, but you can sort of imagine the list. And uh, it, it's got a bunch of really wonderful people that I'm very pleased to be associated with, people like Kerry Cordero and Paul Rosenzweig, and the list just goes on and on, Jonathan Adler, Orrin Kerr. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't normally put myself out there in those sorts of ways, but I thought it was important to do so at this current time. So there you go. Well me, done. Me and the rule of law. I'm proud uh, of you. I know it's shocking. Anyone who listens to the show will be shocked that I would find a, a group like that attractive. Well, I, I mean, I, you know, this is, I'll just say one, one quick thing and then, and then spare you from having to respond to it. Um, I, I, I have been surprised. I mean, the, 
the Lincoln Project, right, has, I think, quite visibly pivoted in the last week from just attacking President Trump to also going after Republican senators who are up for election this fall. Uh, and that's, that's a very controversial step they've taken. And, and that subjected them to a lot of criticism from, I wouldn't say never Trumpers, Bobby, but at least, you know, conservatives who have not been comfortable with Trump, but maybe haven't been the most vocal anti-Trumpers. Um, and I think this sort of raises the whole question of, you know, to what extent do you, and I don't mean you personally, to what extent does one, um, uh, you know, blame those Republican members of Congress who have enabled Trump as part of the, you know, for those who are on all on board with Trump being terrible and bad, all these other things, you know, to what extent are those who enable him, if not equally responsible, at least somewhat responsible for, for, you know, all of this. And, you know, I'm not, I don't mean to put you on the spot. I think that's been an interesting pivot in the conversation at that level. Yeah, I think it's been an, I, I'm aware of it. I don't follow very closely, you know, electioneering, which groups are spending money on what things you can't help but notice Lincoln project because Twitter loves them, some Lincoln Project, and you can't be on Twitter without constantly seeing the ads. So I'm aware of it. Um, and I know, generally speaking, the idea is these are supposed to be, it's, it's Republicans who are never Trumpers, who are running ads, aggressive and highly creative and aggressive ads against Trump, who've now taken that step you described. I'm not sure what I think about that step. I'm, I, in fact, I'm pretty sure I don't think it's a very... A useful step, and I wish they would stay focused on what it was they were originally doing. But um, no one tunes into this for intra GOP political commentary. Uh, you want to hear about Portlandia, at least True. we want to talk about it. And man, there's a lot to talk about there. So let's start as we promised we would with the question of federal law enforcement, which, you know, uttering that phrase a, a year or two ago, federal law enforcement. Of course, the image that should pop into your head would be some combination of FBI, maybe DEA, um, maybe a little ATF in the old days. Um, you certainly wouldn't, most people wouldn't lead with a mental image of various components of DHS. But that is exactly what we're talking about here. This is the sequel to uh, the role of what we might call unorthodox organizations involved in policing against protest activity in DC. Now we're seeing where we had a lot of talk about who got to be a deputized U.S. Marshal, et cetera. Um, But there was this sort of overarching context in the DC setting of, look, the whole district is in, in effect a federal preserve from a certain point of view. And it's not actually all that surprising to see various components of federal workforce that have law enforcement roles. And large swaths of downtown DC are federal property. Exactly. And there's federal buildings everywhere you go. It's sort of shot through uh, with federal uh, nature. Portland is not the same. Most American cities are not the same. They'll have a courthouse. They might have a couple of courthouses. They'll have- Three. Portland has three. Right, which is, I'm confused by that. I actually, I actually can tell you this, the history if you want. It's not that interesting. Okay, well, then we'll skip it. <laughs> uh, but we got post offices, um, there's, and there's usually going to be one or two other, at least, federal buildings in any large American city. So you're going to have a smattering of these. Um, but for the most part, most areas within even the downtown area of a large American city are, of course, not near or uh, directly shot through with federal buildings. But... In Portland, nonetheless, we have we have learned in recent days that DHS personnel, and, and it's a little 
unhelpful to talk in terms of DHS. So let's talk more specifically about component parts because DHS is a big conglomerate with lots of different component parts. Um, uh, my understanding, Steve, correct me if I'm wrong, is that what we're talking about here is um, on one hand, Federal Protective Service, FPS, and on the other hand, Custom and Border Patrol CBP personnel who might be uh, by directive of the Acting Homeland Security Secretary, Chad Wolf, uh, seconded in effect to supporting Federal Protective Service functions as opposed to being there performing CBP functions. Is, is that roughly the size of it? That, I mean, I think that's what we know. I mean, there might be other slices of it, but basically that, you know, the Federal Protective Service, let's just make sure everyone understands, is a law enforcement agency um, that is tasked by statute with protecting federal property and federal buildings. And so, you know, Bobby, if you walk into a random federal building in a random city, chances are, you know, some of the, well, some of the guards you see are going to be contractors, but at least, you know, some of the, the, you know, the uniformed federal agents are probably going to be officers of the Federal Protective Service. Um, so they're now just to the U.S. Marshals protecting the courthouses. Yeah, and actually, I mean, even the, I mean, the, the marshals and the FPS, Bobby, actually share duties over courthouses. So FPS even has a role with courthouses. Um, and I think the, there's, a, there's, a, there's a statute that's really looming large in this whole conversation, which is 40 USC Section 1315, which is part of the Homeland Security Act of 2002, which gives the Secretary of Homeland Security um, the power to basically designate any DHS employee or officer um, to backstop FPS with regard to particular functions. And, you know, my understanding is that the way that we got to where we are in Portland was that Acting Secretary Wolf designated somewhere around 100, maybe 150 CBP officers um, to backstop FPS in the protection of federal buildings and federal property in downtown Portland. And that that's, right, how, so the, that's how the little green men got there. So... It, I, you know, we're using little green men, obviously we're being a bit pejorative, but they kind of earn that by operating without names and without identifying themselves. When you do that, you're going to get the little green men critique every time. And, right. so. and, and, and I have to say, I mean, Bobby, I, I think this, I mean, I think this whole story would be different. Like, so I've been trying really hard since Friday to make sure to keep the conversation as nuanced as possible. Um, because I think that there are a lot of different threads that are overlapping here, right? And I think this whole story would have been different if the CBP officers who were out in force in Portland starting in the middle of last week were, you know, not wearing camouflage, were clearly identifying themselves. Like I think part of what revved this story up, part of what has gotten both sides, I think, fired up about this, right, is the anonymity, is actually the fact that this hasn't been you know, that they're wearing camo, which police forces are not trained to usually do, right? That they're not identifying themselves. You're right. They're, they're pretending to be soldiers. It's right. this paramilitary look combined with, um, with non-identification, at least of the agency you're representing, not stating your authority. If instead you're wearing regular service uniform, not military uniforms. With your name. It, well, and, and even without the name, if they're saying, look, I, my name is being protect, I, is obscured for protective purposes for me, but I am an agent and here's my credentials of, right. of Customs and Border Patrol. I'm here under this authority. My function is to protect this federal building that I'm standing in front of. And if people were just clear about that, I think that would have completely changed the tenor of this. Having people, you know, the way the story broke was that it was night, unmarked vehicles were pulling up, people in in pseudo-military garb were seizing uh, people off the streets and bundling them off. 
I mean, that is not the way the rule of law is supposed to function, to put it mildly. I don't think that even has to be explained. Um, so, so that's deeply problematic. But if you set that aside and ask, okay, are they, are they actually doing any law enforcement activity that's not actually within their legal purview? Because it's clear that there's some amount of legal purview here, and indeed that it's appropriate and right, and I would say quite necessary to protect these federal buildings if there is uh, not just vandalism, but in some cases, uh, violence against the, the facilities, you know, there's, there's possible destruction and, or who knows what sort of harm might occur for the people inside those buildings. There's got to be protection of them. So there's nothing inherently wrong with having federal personnel who are under the proper authority for protecting federal buildings doing that. But we hear that maybe it's a lot more than that, right? We hear that maybe some of the arrests that are taking place are happening in contexts and in locations that don't seem to have much, if any, nexus with the federal buildings themselves. Is, is that your read of the facts? Yes, and I think this is where, you know, so, so Acting Secretary Wolf, uh, Ken Cuccinelli, who keeps calling himself the Acting Deputy Secretary, even though he's not, um, and Mark Morgan, the Acting Commissioner of CBP, have all been like on social media with these chest-thumping tweets about how, you know, they're responding to federal property damage. And, you know, there was this one assault on a U.S. Marshal Service deputy, um, for which, by the way, the guy's already been arrested and charged. Um, you know, and it's just what, what, what I think is really driving me crazy about all of this is that um, it is perfectly appropriate for the federal government to protect federal property and to do what it needs to do to prevent you know, within reason, uh, to prevent assaults on federal property, assaults on federal officers. The reports out of Portland are that CBP is showing, is, is in a show of force, right? That they're doing counter protest maneuvering. And that's not what FPS, its job is. Like if the whole point of CBP is there to backstop FPS, fine, put them in the buildings, right? Put them in front of the buildings, but send them out in the streets to sort of push back against protesters, to pick people up, to arrest them is so far beyond not just what the statute authorizes, but what the federal law enforcement mission has ever been understood to be. Um, that's what I find so you know, frustrating about this scenario. What, help me understand, what is the basis for being away from the building, going into a context where there's a protest, and purporting to clear the protesters out of an area? Is there a notion that there's a light switch that these officers can throw that says, all right, 100 yards around, this post office, no one can stand there. You can only be in this space. I mean, is what's the legal basis for that? I'm not I, aware of what that I don't be. know. I mean, I mean, the if you just read the statute, right? The statute says the officers can make arrests based on probable cause, right? So if they think that an individual, if they have probable cause to believe that a person in front of them has committed an offense under federal law, which by the way, you know, is not that easy, um, they can make arrests, right? Um, I think the provision they might be relying on, Bobby, is they can investigate right, um, uh, violations of federal law. And so maybe CBP, if put, you know, to its paces, would say, you know, we have clear evidence of violations of federal law. Look at all the graffiti on the courthouses. And yep. we're sending our officers into the streets to investigate. But <laughs> that's just, I mean, you know, I, the hubris behind that. And, and what I think is especially galling is, you know, the notion that the federal government doesn't have a broad law enforcement power is a central tenet of federalism. Like it is, it is at the core of the project. But all of a sudden, because it's Trump and because it's a, you know, perceived as progressive protesters, feh. 
Well, look, Trump has been no champion of federalism, quite the opposite, uh, as I've often referred to his uh, treatment of the governors and his, his language about governors in the pandemic setting. It's been a war on federalism. So it doesn't surprise me in the slightest that this administration would uh, take steps that are antithetical to federalism values. Um, well, look, I think that when you have context where people gather at a courthouse and are throwing things at the courthouse, I think it starts getting muddy as to what the boundaries are of the federal officials' authority to take action to push them back from the courthouse where they can't cause damage. So I think it gets murky in some of those situations. Um, but in the other situations we've been reading about where there have been reports of people who were not in the midst of protesting at all, but were walking down the street and then got arrested, I guess you're supposed to think, I guess we are supposed to assume that there is, a, a, one hopes, a good faith belief on the part of the arresting agents that that person earlier had been involved in an attack on federal property. And now what they're doing is effectuating the arrest uh, in some point in time later. But then again, I don't know that any of these people that CBP has been taken into custody, have any of them been ending up in the uh, Bureau of Prisons system? Have any of them, have, has a single one been brought to arraignment? No. Or all of them being bundled into vans, being uh, put into a, a terrifying situation and intimidated, and then getting released a couple of hours later before any process can set in. Is, is that what's unfolding here? I mean, we just don't know, I think. No, but I mean, I would think that if there were specific examples of CBP arresting individuals for federal crimes that made it all the way into court, um, that the DHS folks would be waving that around as loudly as they could. And the fact that there's no public suggestion to that end, I think is pretty, you know, damning evidence of its absence. Um, yeah, at a certain point, that becomes extremely problematic because of course, you know, one might try to say like, look, in the end, they're, they're not actually prosecuting people. People need to calm down. Well, quite the opposite, because it's, it's an, an immensely impactful thing, obviously, to arrest somebody, especially when you do it by rolling up in an unmarked vehicle and with no names and no identification of your agency, grabbing that person, bundling them into the van, as it were, um, and to have them in, in that kind of custody for some period of time, for any period of time, even if they roll around the block and then push them out the door again, that's still a huge deal. It's still a seizure and it still implicates the, the Fourth Amendment. And anyways, that, this brings us around to, let's, let's come back to intelligence collection in a second. Let's talk about the actual use of force where, I don't know if we know the identity of the organization of which the federal officer uh, was part, but shooting with a so-called less than lethal round, a protester striking him in the head and the guy suffers, I think, a fractured skull and, and serious injuries. Um, Steve, from a legal analysis perspective, what possible basis is there for, uh, I mean, I guess the guy could say like it wasn't meant to be a headshot, it really was meant to be a less than lethal round, but is this not a, a fourth and a fifth amendment problem at least? And, and is there any legal redress for it? So, I mean, this is where, again, keeping separate, separate, right? So separate from the anonymity issue, separate from the, by what authority is CBP on the streets in the first place. So now let's assume you have a federal law enforcement officer who's lawfully entitled to be where he is and who uses excessive force in trying to either, you know, stop a protester or, you know, protect himself from what he believes is some kind of threat to his, you know, whatever. Um, you know, Bobby, that's just a pretty classic exec excessive force case. 
But here again, we run into the problem of using C. I mean, I don't know if that incident was CBP, but here's another area where the fact that it's CBP raises all kinds of alarm bells because not only is CBP not trained in regular law enforcement, right? Their principal job is the border patrol, border patrol. Um, but um, you know, there is a long litany of 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 records that CBP is actually terrible at excessive force. Um, right, that there's a culture within CBP that is not actually especially good about respecting excessive force rules. Um, and, you know, there's a Supreme Court case from February that I lost um, about how difficult it is to sue CBP officers when they use excessive force. So, you know, I think there's this, there are so many different problems that like have merged into one in the Portland situation. And it's deeply it's it's alarming because like I just you know it, it doesn't it doesn't seem like Portland's isolated like it seems like the you well, know it's the, not going to be for long we're told right that net, they're going to send 150 homeland security investigators into Chicago um, right to deal with gang violence um, gang violence I mean I, you know I'm not going to remotely try to downplay gang violence but you know gang violence is not really a federal concern and this is just I just go back Bobby to you know the there's a reason why the federal government doesn't have a general police power. And there's a reason why we leave law enforcement in the first instance up to local and state authorities. And it would be one thing if, you know, you have the president going out there and saying, you know, federal law is being hindered by local and state authorities, which is what we saw like during the civil rights movement, when you have like Eisenhower and Kennedy and Johnson sending troops right into Southern cities that weren't enforcing civil rights laws. Um, I, you know, the efforts of right-wing Twitter to portray this as similar, notwithstanding, this is not that. Like, this is not that. So the uh, the, the federalism dimension is a big deal, but I also want to draw attention to the, uh, the intra-executive federal dimension to this. As Carrie Cordero has written very persuasively at The Bulwark and elsewhere, um, part of what's going on here, of course, is a circumvention of FBI and the Justice Department. The Justice Department... <laughs> And the FBI, of course, are the nation's lead law enforcement uh, institutions at the federal level. Um, and, and famously, shall we say, the, the Trump administration is not on good terms. The FBI hasn't, hasn't functioned well with the FBI. And the FBI is not going to be compliant with any kind of ridiculous program to try to uh, inject FBI agents en masse into a city in order to supplant local law enforcement function and to advance some some narrative the president has about being, you know, uh, the, the tough guy who's here to save us from the caravans of, of Antifa or whatever it's going to be. Um, what's happening, of course, is that he's discovered or others have discovered for him that Homeland Security has all these personnel, has all these personnel and has authorities where they can, based on the predicate of the federal buildings and federal properties, can be brought in large numbers, and if and if people are willing to push it, can start pushing out away from those buildings and take certain actions and give the president a uh, a much more congenial organizational uh, vehicle to advance the narratives he wants to advance and to create the events he wants to create. Um, and that's basically what's happening here. And as, again, as Kerry has written, it's circumvention of the FBI and by extension of the Justice Department. Um, none of this is under the purview of Bill Barr. This is under the purview of Chad Wolf. Um, and when in America did Homeland Security become the central law enforcement mechanism in this way at the federal level? Uh, that's, that's quite a sea change. Related to it, of course, is the fact that there are 
almost no Senate confirmed appointees running DHS. It's, it's the ultimate expression of the president's stated preference for having people who are not Senate confirmed in contravention of the Constitution, in contravention of everything the founders had in mind about how um, these sorts of personnel decisions would be made to lead federal agencies. And but but uh, not, not to say I mean it's I mean today is day four sixty nine without a Senate confirmed Secretary of Homeland Security and without even a nominee Bobby that is the longest vacancy in the history of the United States Cabinet yeah like, it's ever it's, it's you know you and I have said this before so I want to belabor the point it is true and fair to say that none of us can say how many days makes it unconstitutional but. There's no question in my mind that it is a violation of the separation of powers and it is a violation of the Constitution's carefully calibrated framework in which the expectation, of course, is that at some point you nominate someone and the Senate either votes that person through or they do not. Having an arrangement where the president's perfectly happy just to have a series of acting officials precisely by his own account because they're more compliant with his wishes and less accountable to any outside influence such as that of the Senate. Well, right, I understand that, but the Senate was given its constitutional role for a reason. It's clearly being circumvented here. Uh, and then of course, there's the gutting of the inspector general functions, which weren't very strong at uh, DHS to begin with as Kerry has documented. So the whole thing, it's sort of like water finding its own level. This desire to have a complacent and compliant um, coercive arm, that will be more responsive to the president's wishes. Well, that desire has been there. It's butted up against the FBI and it's butted up against, you know, every, every agency of the intelligence community at various points in time. Now it's found its comfortable expression through the Department of Homeland Security and in particular through these combinations that are possible with the Federal Protective Service and CBP. Uh, it's really, it's really a painful thing to watch, but again, it's, it's being done by taking advantage of the authorities that were there in ways that only norms previously were constraining. The laws weren't previously constraining. And so we've seen that story many times here. Now we should, on the same theme, take note, Steve, of the intelligence collection aspect, because uh, you and, and Ben Wittes had an incredible post at yeah. Lawfare. Uh, it was a scoop. It was a straight up bit of journalism where you guys got your hands on a document. Tell us about the document and then let's talk about the legal ramifications. So the, the document that was sent to Ben, um, I really just got to, to sort of uh, freeload off of, off of Ben's uh, report, rep, reportage. Um, so the, the document is this really interesting document. Um, it's titled uh, Job Aid, DHS Office of Intelligence and Analysis Activities in Furtherance of Protecting American Monuments, Memorials, Statues, and Combating Recent Criminal Violence. Um, and it's basically a memo to analysts in the DHS Office of Intelligence and Analysis, um, basically instructing them on what they were supposed to do in response to the president's executive order on the protection of monuments and statues. Um, and what it basically is tasking them to do is to collate um, intelligence information, even, you know, even what they, I mean, Bobby, information gained from other sources, like they're not actually going out and conducting surveillance, but still to put together files on, you know, individuals who are apparently involved in attacks on 
monuments and statues because those attacks are a threat to homeland security. So I, INA, Intelligence Analysis. Which, is, by the way, whatever anyone says, I think I, and the, the INA is the Immigration and Nationality Act. I know, I know. It's, a, it's, a, it's funny. It sounds exactly like the old INA. But I so, and A. I and A, the DHS intelligence shop, is an analysis shop. Yep. This is the big distinction. When we talk about intelligence functions, they don't, not all intelligence agencies do the same things. Um, there are a number of, of bodies uh, that are purely analytic. That is, they are taking in information that others collect in various ways, and they're, they're doing the scholarly work of processing it and trying to drive insight, creating analytic reports, et cetera, for this. Uh, INA is supposed to be like that. It's, a, it's an analysis shop. It's not a human collection agency. It's not a SIGINT collection agency. It's none of the ints, at least it's not supposed to be. Although um, I, I know that on uh, the Lawfare podcast, uh, there was some speculation when you guys talked about this, that maybe they're engaging in a bit of OSINT, open source information uh, intelligence collection. Uh, maybe, maybe not. But in any event, INA is, is there to provide analysis. There's nothing wrong. Indeed, it, it is their mission to uh, produce analysis on anything that is relevant to the DHS mission. If protection of federal buildings and if protection of monuments is otherwise properly part of the mission, then it's certainly a, a policy question about priorities for sure. But I see no problem with INA having an intelligence analysis mission. The question becomes, what is being sacrificed either in relation to, oh, I don't know, cybersecurity, oh, actual terrorism, things that are the reason we even have this Counterintelligence, like, you know, foreign Counter interference in elections. Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of... I, I, can, I, can, I, can I pick one fight with you about the no problem statement? Yep, sure, please. So, so I said this on the Lawfare, I mean, you know, there's a much longer discussion of this on, on last night's Lawfare podcast, which I would encourage folks who have nothing better to do to, to check out, um, right? But the... I think I basically agree with you, Bobby, with one caveat, which is the way that this memo is written. It is not limited to federal monuments, um, right? It is not limited to monuments and memorials either built by the federal government or built on federal property. And I do not understand for the life of me how it is a homeland security interest, whether private individuals are engaged in acts of vandalism and violence against non-federal monuments and memorials on non-federal property. I just like, if that is a Homeland Security threat, what isn't? No, yeah, so I don't know specifically what the ins and outs of that are, but if we stipulate that they've taken on the mission of doing intelligence analysis, and, and by the way, what are we talking about? Well, we're almost certainly talking about network analysis of who's working with who, who's planning what. This is gonna be all about trying to find out what people are saying on social media, about where they're gonna gather, et cetera. Um, that, that things having no connection to federal property should not be, that aren't, that are just, you know, hey, there's, there's activists exercising their First Amendment rights to protest here. Oh, and we think amidst some, somewhere in there might be some people who are gonna do destruction of property. Um, that's a law enforcement issue. It is not a Department of Homeland Security issue. Right. It's not. And therefore, it's not a matter for the, that piece of the uh, intelligence community known as I and A. By the way, where's the ODNI in all this? Why isn't the ODNI uh, corralling and keeping a close eye on what this one minor constituent component of the larger IC is doing? 
well, does anybody really expect the current DNI to do anything other than to encourage this? Of course not. Um, well, I think that, there's an interesting question here for the IG. Yes. Uh, the ODNI IG might want to look at what if, if the DHS IG can't do it. What about ODNI? But here's, so I, did you, I don't know if you saw this on Friday. So Billy Williams is the U.S. attorney for the District of Oregon, um, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, we've spent I wonder a lot what his middle initial is. Is it D? Is it D? Um, so, so although if you looked, if, if you ever saw a picture of, of U.S. Attorney Billy Williams, no one would confuse. I would him. not get it confused. No, okay. no. Um, Lando Calrissian look alike. He is not. Um, okay. So, um, but so he said he's actually going to make a referral to the DHS Inspector General um, about what CBP is up to, uh, which I thought was a remarkable statement from a you know serve at the pleasure of the President, Federal DOJ appointee to make. Um, and I was, I was actually really impressed by it. Um, the, the, you know, what you just said, Bobby, is, I mean, there's one other thing I think that needs to be said here, which is we talked about the culture of CPP. We talked about the lack of any Senate confirmed people and the sort of the White House's control. I mean, it's not for nothing that this is CBP. Like of every federal law enforcement agency to send onto the streets of an American city, you know, CBP and ICE are probably the two that would be the most controversial. Like if this were the U.S. Marshals Service, or if this were the Secret Service, you know, I, I don't think you have nearly the same kind of reaction. But like, this is such a, you know, owning the libs move um, by using this particular, you know, uh, um, agency in this particular context in a city and state with, you know, democratically elected, you know, democratic leadership. I mean, I just, I, I do, I do think there is that valence to it. But I also do not think that they realistically had the option because I don't think they could have gotten the U.S. Marshal Service, just as they can't get the FBI, and they and I don't think they can get the Secret Service to do quite what they can get CBP and apparently perhaps F, uh, FPS yes. to do. Yeah, I think that those organizations have entirely different cultures and different histories and different standards and values that would not allow them to be directed in this way. Um, and and also it has, it's questionable who's the acting leadership. Of course, there's not real confirmed leadership. Who's the acting leadership, and what are they willing to put up with? And so I think all these things kind of point in that direction of using uh, CBP. All right, that's Portlandia. Um, and it soon will become Chicagolandia and other, other Landia. So the tour is coming to a town near you. Well, and I'll say, um, I mean, and, and in, in, in the world of interesting timing, um, DHS Appropriations is in the house next week. Yeah, yeah, that'll be interesting to see if they take some shots there. They certainly should. I think, look, I also think there's a danger. I want to flag this. Uh, this is flashy. It's sizzly. It does need to be criticized and called out. But if if the word is that, you know, let's say 50 CBP agents have been sent to Dallas or sent to wherever they get sent to next, um, there will be a tendency to assume that, ah, the feds are all over the city and the city's been federalized and it's the siege, that sort of thing. And there's a danger that we actually kind of play into um, the the desired narratives that are that are lurking under the surface of all this where the president would like nothing more than to have it seem as if the entire country at last was flooded with uh, agents that were willing to do something about this thing that's happening. Uh, when in fact, I, I'm skeptical that he actually has the manpower to be able to do this at scale. Um, and so as there are stories in the week ahead about this Portland model being extended to other places, um, I worry a little bit about the possibility that it's sort of a, a token extension 
but that all of us, all of us in covering it and talking about it will treat it as more than it is and kind of play into the president's hands in that respect. Well, but this is why I think, I mean, this is why I think it's important to separate out. I mean, this is why I think the nuance matters, Bobby, right? This is why it's important to understand that there are circumstances in which it's appropriate for federal law enforcement to go into cities that don't want them, right? Yep. I mean, like, this is all the more reason to, under, to, to not just have a knee-jerk reaction one way or the other and to see the nuance here. Yeah. If federal courts are being vandalized and if, if the city yeah. is not doing a good job of providing police protection to prevent that, I think it's entirely appropriate to do something about it. It's, it's the question of what follows from that. That's where all, and, and what sort of uh, away from the moment in proximity of the building uh, enforcement authority. But just one last thought on the intelligence collection and analysis piece. Um, I think as, as we were talking about a moment ago, there, there's all this business about how INA is going to do analysis. Maybe, maybe they'll be doing a little bit of open source collection of their own, just sort of from what's, what's out there on the web. Um, but that doesn't mean that's the end of it in terms of what DHS personnel are doing to investigate. I think that the CBP personnel who have been placed into this role um, can and probably are themselves doing all sorts of investigative work that we would consider collection if you frame it in an intelligence context and the sorts of things that would be cause for concern um, about the use of sources, about interrogation, about possible use of electronic devices for various kinds of surveillance. Those are the things that I don't think INA is going to be doing any of that. If it's happening, I think CBP might be doing some of that. And so if I were a, uh, uh, investigator, a congressional investigator trying to understand what's happening here. If I was an inspector general trying to understand what's happening here, I'd be looking to the actual operators in the streets as to what they're doing to gather information. What kind of analysis and technology are they bringing to bear there? Not INA. Okay. Can I, um, can I just, can I, so apparently on Fox and Friends this morning. Um, I didn't watch, did you? Uh, no, but Senator Tom Cotton said these insurrectionists in the streets of Portland are little different from the insurrectionists who seceded from the Union in 1861 in South Carolina and tried to take over Fort Sumter. Yes, it's quite, quite analogous, isn't it? No! Um, <laughs> now, would, you, would you grant the analogy to a limited extent? In no! So far? Well, come on now, you got to at least hear what I'm going to say. What about the CHOP? Let's talk about the CHOP in Seattle, um, a self-identified autonomous zone. So in areas where uh, protesters actually specifically articulate that they're displacing regular authority, um, any analogy there? I don't, I mean, so listen, uh, there are plenty of examples of, of protesters and others who have, who have objected to the federal government's authority over them, right? Um, the notion that that's all that happened in South Carolina, that, you know, these... No, I'm not saying like, that. That's not the absolute... I, won't, I will not let you pin that on me. I, I'm, I'm, not, not, I'm not pinning on you. I'm pinning on Tom Cotton, right? That, right. that like, yes, at the, at the incredibly superficial level of people objecting to federal authority over them, there's an analogy. But, you know, what happened in South Carolina in 1861 was a little more detailed than just people objecting to federal authority over them. Well, I want to press on this just a little bit because I, I think it goes somewhere that we need to keep one eye on, which we previously talked about a bunch, which is the possible return of an Insurrection Act uh, style invocation, where if at some point the president discovers that there's only so much DHS can do for him and he needs a little bit more, will he turn back to the military tool uh, because he wants to deploy it in some particular place. And if you have an autonomous zone set up by protesters, that is to say 
uh, protesters occupying and excluding local, state and local authority, let alone federal authority, but state and local authority from that place. Um, I do think that that is exactly the sort of fact pattern where the president would be uh, most, you know, most able to invoke the Insurrection Act because of this displacement of authority. Right now, I don't think we have that because the president, the whole point of the Portland story is that he's finding he can use DHS, doesn't have to try to make use of the military, and doesn't have to court the sorts of legal and policy problems that came in D.C. with his use of the military there Except and talk that, about I, using it further. But, but, but I, I think we need to watch out for future developments that create conditions on the ground where he might say, ah, in that case, where in the city of X, there's an autonomous zone set up. I think we might yet see him try that move. So listen, I actually think federalizing the guard would have been a better move here. I mean, I, you know, if what you're really interested in is restoring order, and if, if your real claim is that is that things are out of control in Portland, you need to restore order, right? CBP is not an order restoring body. The order restoring right. body, right? If, if, you, if what this is really about is restoring order, federalize the Oregon National Guard or invoke the Insurrection Act. Like, you know, that's, it is yet further proof that this is just a political stunt, right? That they're not actually taking the steps that are available to them if this were actually about, you know, a breakdown of law and order in an American city. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And it nicely captures sort of the way to think about the DC situation and the conversations we had then versus the Portland situation. The Portland situation is being framed narratively as a restoration of order as, you know, to borrow from your reference to Cotton there, um, the, the uh, sort of insurrection-y flavor of the characterization of what's going on. But the authorities that have actually been brought to bear are limited to protection of federal buildings, federal property. And we've seen them push beyond that, it seems, at least a bit, problematically so. Um, they really are anchored to that, legally speaking, though, and they can't go more broadly without switching to this other more visible and more politically uh, costly uh, set of authorities, which is, I think, why they didn't go that route yet. Um, all right. So we have no doubt more of this coming in the future. And of course, the big question that hangs over all of us is, is there some set of events in November where it interferes in some fashion with access to easy voting, um, where somebody or other of, uh, whether it's CBP or, or federalized national guard are being used in ways around the time of the election that create problems. I'm very hopeful that we don't see anything like that, but it's something we have to keep an eye on. All right, um, a, a related pivot. There was a, you know, speaking of all this law enforcement without the Justice Department, we do have a Justice Department. We have federal prosecutors, they do things. And one of the things they recently did in the case of Armando Diaz, um, an MS-13 associated person, there was an indictment in the Eastern District of Virginia that got a lot of attention, not because it's, terribly novel to have a uh, gang leader indicted and have there be lots of uh, charges about various involvements in violent crime. But among the charges, in addition to uh, RICO charges and various conspiracy of the kind you might expect, um, let me just name some of the charges that were brought here. Uh, conspiracy to provide and conceal material support to terrorists under section 2339A, the the older of the two material support statutes. Um, conspiracy to kill or maim persons outside the United States under section 956A, which is a conspiracy to kill charge that's closely associated with terrorism cases. Um, but by the way, 
it should be acknowledged right at the outset, isn't specifically in any way limited by its elements to terrorism scenarios. And it has been used in, in other contexts for run of the mill, if you will, violent crimes of that kind. A conspiracy to commit acts of terrorism transcending national boundaries in violation of 18 U.S. Code 2332B. Um, conspiracy to finance terrorism, narco-terrorism conspiracy, IEPA violations. This has a lot of terrorism charges in it. And it's possible there have been other MS-13 or similar gang cases that had some of these charges, but I don't recall any off the top of my head. And a lot of the coverage has framed this as uh, somewhat of a Rubicon crossing that deciding to at last begin to move into the realm of identifying groups that would traditionally be distinctly categorized as organized crime of various types, in this case, uh, transnational uh, narcotics organizations uh, or transnational criminal organizations and bringing to bear terrorism related crimes. Um, honestly, I think the shoe fits here. I think that MS-13 though we are we are prone to drawing a distinction between terrorist organizations on one hand and uh, international narcotics organizations like cartels on the other. The reality is that it needs only the most brief and superficial familiarity with cartels and gangs like MS-13 to appreciate that terrorism is part and parcel of, of what they do. Um, yes, they're in it for the money as opposed to ideology or theology, but displacement of government authority, intimidation of civilian populations, intimidation and coercion of governments uh, through violence and threats of violence is bread and butter. And a lot of these uh, charges here actually seem to fit perfectly well as a matter of their elements. And none of these charges, I think, um, are in any way crossing into the one zone of terrorism law that we sometimes talk about on this show as something that would be a problematic fit for these more crime focused organizations. And that is uh, doing designations. Although even here, MS-13 certainly has enough foreign footing to be uh, potentially plausible as a designated foreign terrorist organization. Um, so despite all the attention this got, I don't think it's problematic to, to have applied it in the case of Armando Diaz and MS-13. What's interesting to ponder always is, okay, but could these same tools be brought to bear and, and would it be problematic if they were brought to bear ostensibly against you know, some individual would take out MS-13 and put in Antifa or something like that into the fact pattern and make it a, make it a charge brought in the context of, you know, somebody arrested in Portland. Um, we haven't seen anything like that. I don't know that we're going to see anything like that. And it would depend on the fact pattern, of course, whether it really would be an abuse or, or a fair application of these authorities. It just seems weird because we're accustomed to thinking of all the terrorism-related offenses, or at least the the public is accustomed to hearing it only in the context of uh, foreign terrorist organizations of the Al-Qaeda or Islamic State variety, where there's not really a monetary focus to what they're doing. Um, but that doesn't mean it can't be applied in these other contexts. So there you go. That's Armando Diaz's case. Uh, Steve, what do we have next? I mean, we got, you know, lightning round. Um... So where do you want to start? I mean, we have so many different topics to talk about. We've got Shrems, we've got the Nine Circuit State Secrets cases, we've got Majid Khan, we've got Michael Cohen. Take yeah, it, let's, spin the wheel. Let's spin the wheel. Michael Cohen, what, why is he back in our news? So Michael Cohen, President Trump's former personal lawyer, um, has brought a fascinating new lawsuit, um, which I actually think, Bobby, he's going to win. 
Um, and the lawsuit is against Attorney General Barr, the Bureau of Prisons, and some other fine people. Um, and the lawsuit basically alleges that Cohen, uh, Cohen's supervised release um, was wrongfully revoked um, in retaliation for the fact that he's writing a book. Basically that, you know, he was um, allowed to sort of finish serving part of his prison sentence um, um, out of jail, um, that, um, you know, he signed, uh, apparently he signed something when he was released. Uh, and apparently, like, he was told, if you write a book, we're going to put you back in prison. Um, and he said, whatever, it's a book. You can't do that to me. Um, so who's the, uh, who's the authority making that admonition? Um, I assume it's the director of the Bureau of Prisons, right? Or the ward. So, so this the is ward. a court-enforced move. This is a BOP-enforced. Yeah. I, I know nothing about this stuff works. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so Cohen has filed a habeas petition, basically demanding his release on the ground that, like, putting him back into prison in retaliation for an exercise of his First Amendment rights um, is unlawful. There, there must have been some stated actual rule of his circumstance that was violated by the was there some agreement not to talk publicly about the underlying facts of the case? Was, I mean, there must have been something. Surely they didn't just say, you know, we think you shouldn't be in the book writing business. Don't you do it. So, I mean, all, we, all I've seen so far, right, are the allegations in the habeas petition, um, right? And so it's entirely possible that there are allegations that are not part of the habeas petition, um, right, that, that might be sort of related to that. But um, what the petition basically says, um, I, want, I want to read the relevant pages. Um, Okay, so the Federal Location Monitoring Program Participant Agreement um, reads, right, no one gave him any kind of the media, including print, TV, film, books, or any other form of media news. And so basically what they're saying is that this provision of this agreement is unconstitutional. Oh, I see. Well, okay, so that makes it seem less crazy. I mean, right, if, if there was no such term and then he was just told, like, by the way, I really don't want you writing a book, you're going, to, you're going back to jail if you do, that would obviously seem like an arbitrary uh, abuse. This seems like he has a rule. He flouted. There is a rule. He flouted it. Although the petition alleges that they made the rule up for Cohen. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, yeah. So yeah. I'll, listen, I'm not prejudging the merits of this case. All yeah. I'm saying is this is going to be interesting. It will be. But I, so I, I, my initial reaction was like, this is crazy. Now my reaction is, this is not so crazy. I think it's interesting. And I think it's a really Definitely interesting that. question. I, agree with that. I think it's a really interesting question about whether the government can, can condition either every prisoner or even some prisoners' right to be released under monitoring on, their, on, on a gag order, basically. Right. Yeah, there's, there's certainly a lack of nexus there. It's a little hard to understand. You know, I, if it's not part of the sentence, then why is... You understand if you're in prison, there will be constraints in your ability to communicate. Uh, but you're not being held incommunicado except under pretty extreme circumstances. And there's process around that. Right. Listen, so I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not denying that there are circumstances where you don't want someone who's out on release to, you know, to, to talk about certain things, but like Cohen is not in jail for the book. Like Cohen, you know, I mean, this uh, anyway. Right. Right. It does seem, something seems fishy. Clearly. Yeah. Uh, okay. So uh, we've got this ninth circuit ruling uh, in en banc denial with um, a, with a complicated modification to the original panel opinion in Fugaza, which is a case. Fazaga. Fazaga? Yeah. Not Fugazi. Not, not Fugazi. Fugazi. <laughs> Isn't that a band? Yeah. Um, I think it's what was causing me problems there. Uh, so 
it's so complicated. I do not think we should try to spell out all the details, but you've got individuals who had a battery of claims alleging both unlawful surveillance of them and discriminatory uh, religious discrimination in, in the idea that they allegedly were surveilled because they were Muslims and, and based solely on that, right? Um, and this had resulted in an array of mo a motion to dismiss the, char the uh, complaint on an array of grounds. There are elements of the government taking certain positions and then the individual agents who were sued taking certain positions. The state secrets privilege is mixed up in there. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's fair to say that, that sort of the gravamen of the dispute is whether the statutory FISA provision yes. that allows for the district judge to review the basis for, the, for electronic surveillance under FISA uh, and creates procedures for in-camera ex parte review, et cetera, which clearly to that extent in a in an ordinary FISA case where FISA surveillance is being used in a criminal prosecution, clearly would override any sort of state secrets objection to letting the judge review the basis for the FISA application. Is that same mechanism properly deployed here where you have people claiming that among other things, they were electronically surveilled? And, um, and, and just how broad does the sweep of that provision go if they can properly um, invoke it in the first place. And this is a case where there is no attempt by the government to use the fruits of FISA surveillance against them. And I don't think that they are themselves making a FISA was violated civil claim. No, no. The, the, the question is, the question is what procedure applies, right? When you're trying to contest um, evidence that was obtained through FISA, right? And so, so it's, the question is, does the 1806 procedure apply in the civil context? Um, but but are they actually even bringing a FISA civil suit? Uh, no, right. I mean, I, I think part of this was uh, Bivens, right? Part of this was constitutional damages. Yeah, exactly. And so so there's an, it's it's what makes this case kind of squirrely and interesting is it, it actually wouldn't be a hard case, I think, if either they were being prosecuted and the government wanted to use the fruits of FISA, but that's not this case, and and it wouldn't necessarily be a hard case if they uh, like. That, that case in Oregon a while back, the name of which is escaping me. Brandon Mayfield? Uh, no, not Mayfield. So there was another case where there was the accidental disclosure that revealed to these uh, individuals or the organization that, was it Al Haramain? Yeah, Al Haramain. Yeah, and, and it was revealed accidentally through a disclosure, uh, discovery screw up that, yeah, you're surveilled. Anyways, if they were making a civil claim under FISA that, yes, we were surveilled and now we're, we're suing, we're aggrieved persons under that, basis, it's not clear to me that's what was going on here. It definitely isn't what's going on as, as to some of their other claims. But the, the thrust of the uh, panel decision, and now sustained by the denial of the en banc, is that nonetheless, the 1806, section 1806 procedures, uh, where the court does get to look at the evidence, does go through the file, etc., um, overrides and displaces state secrets privilege. And it is, I, I would say that the, uh, the opinion that dropped is 114 total pages. It's like a battle royal. There's a very feisty dissent. Um, there are feisty, uh, there's the restated panel opinion. There are concurrences. And the number of weighty issues are substantial. Um, pretty closely divided. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't 1514. This was more like what, 1819 to 10 or 12 or something. Yeah, I think, I think there were 10, 10 dissents in this one and 12 in the other one. 
Yeah. So, but, but serious division, a lot of judges saying that this was, this was the wrong outcome. Uh, I do think this has a chance to go to the Supreme court. Obviously we'll, we'll weigh on it in much more detail. (laughs) But the only thing I was going to say was, so, so um, Wikimedia is currently appealing Bobby in the fourth circuit. (laughs) Excuse me. The district court's dismissal of its lawsuit against the NSA for upstream. Um, right, where the district court held that, it, I mean, the, this issue, the issue on which the Pizaga, the, the issue on which the dissents focus, because there's a lot in the majority opinion, but the issue on which the dissents from the denial of rehearing on Bonk focus in Pizaga is, in many ways, I think the central issue, the Fourth Circuit is soon to decide in the Wikimedia appeal. Um, and so, you know, not only do I think Pizaga itself is a good candidate to go to the Supreme Court, but it's very possible we're going to end up with a circuit split. Yeah, yeah, that'll that'll make it. And this is really and, and, important stuff. Well, and the broader question, I mean, I, I, just to step back, the broader question is, you know, especially now that there's so much more concern about violations of FISA, right? Um, how are courts supposed to sort of deal with assessing that in a context in which the state secrets privilege is also a defense, right? That is to say, you know, because I don't think it's hard to imagine that taken to its limit, the state secrets privilege would block any and all civil suits that have anything to do with FISA, um, right? Except in the extreme case where like everything was, was either, you know, deliberately or, or wrongfully disclosed to the, to, the, to the aggrieved party. Well, so if you have an aggrieved party who can, who can establish standing, I think it's fairly clear the 1806 allows them, it certainly allows judicial review and a challenge to the basis for the FISA surveillance ab initio, right? I don't think anyone's disputing I would, that. I mean, I would think so, but that's actually part of what the government's contesting in the Fourth Circuit. So this is why I just, I, I, think, I think this issue is actually really hard. And I think that like, you know, I'm very sympathetic to the panel opinion in Fizaga. And I think there are reasons why the dissents would go too far the other direction, but we can, we can save this for a time when it's really yeah. fully joined. Yeah, natu- naturally, I, I think the dissent uh, had it right. And I don't say that <laughs> just, because they, just because they cited me some. All right. Um, so two two quick notes of things we'll probably talk about in more detail later because we're already we're already late. Um, so first is we do want to spend some time talking about the European Court of Just or the Court of Justice of the European Union's decision in Schrems two, um, in which it invalidated Privacy Shield and basically probably Bobby made it much much harder um, to um, uh, for U.S. companies to do cross border data transfers. Yeah, this is going to drive data localization because yeah. I don't think, I don't see anything happening within the European political system that would in any way disrupt this from the European side. And I certainly don't see a legislative response from the United States that would in some way uh, extend the sort of privacy rights that they are calling for, for European citizens to have in relation to 12333 collection and Section 702 collection. That's not going to change. So I think we really are at an impasse at this point. Yep. And the companies are going to have to respond to this by adopting corporate structures and, and server localization structures that are going to be inefficient, not what they want, less, you know, less profitable, et cetera. But they'll just have to adapt in a certain way. Um, I, I'll be curious to see whether the end result of that probably inevitable organizational and technical reshuffling also has tax implications that drive um, the locus of taxation in a way that pulls it out of the United States and into the European Union too, which would be an, uh, you know, an awfully convenient and happy, from the European perspective, a very happy turn of events as well. 
All right, and then finally, Majid Khan. We talked about this briefly, but the, the trial judge in the Majid Khan case, the Gitmo Military Commissions, agreed with Khan that the government had committed a series of discovery abuses, of sanctionable discovery abuses, in um, making it difficult for Khan to bring his challenge that the former convening authority, Bobby, should have been recused. Um, and uh, as a sanction, um, the, the uh, trial judge imposed a one-year administrative credit or gave Khan a one-year administrative credit. We don't know what his actual sentence is going to be yet, but whatever. Right, it's, it's hard be. to know, like, is this like one off of 200 or is it one off of 15? I mean, that's part of why I think, but I, I don't, we'll see just how big a deal this is. But just the mere fact that a trial judge in the Guantanamo military commissions is holding that the government committed discovery abuses and imposing sanctions. Yep. Like, that's, you know, that's pretty... Um, unheard of in the military commissions. Well, and and what a sign of the times about how far back in the newspaper one would have to go, uh, metaphorically, to even know about that, right? Yeah. Uh, it, it's just not even close to the front page in, of interest to people compared to this other stuff we've got today. And if you told me 10 years ago that there would be rulings like this and that even in our community, nobody's really paying much attention, I just couldn't have believed it. But then I, mean, again, that, I, mean, I would never I, have seen all this other stuff coming. I mean, Majid Khan, Shrems, and either of the two Ninth Circuit decisions from yesterday would have each, in my, you know, when we started this podcast, oh, would have, would the have whole show. I would have thought any one of those things would have been a whole show. And now we have like five minutes to go through them because of all the insanity that's happening in the world. No, I know. It, it, it pains me to let a 114-page state secrets opinion go by with the treatment we just gave it, let alone Shrems. Oh, my God. But that's the world we live in. And we didn't even really save time for frivolity. I'm, I'm not, I don't know about you. I'm not feeling very frivolous. I know. I feel duty-bound to at least take a minute here just to chat about non, non-substantive stuff. All right. So I, 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 spent, I, I, I spent about 15 minutes watching one of the Mets-Yankees games this weekend. Oh, yeah? Which one? Uh, the, the one the Mets lost. Oh, they lost yeah. both of them. Um, um, you know, because they played this exhibition game Saturday night at City Field and Sunday night at Yankee Stadium. Um, and Bobby, it was weird. It was really weird. Were they doing weird. fake crowd noise? They were doing the fake crowd noise, but it wasn't like, I just, it's, it's, I don't know what that is, but it doesn't feel like baseball. Um, so we've got this phenomenon where the NBA is about to start. I think with the NBA, if they do the fake crowd noise and they control the camera angles well enough, they might be able to have it go okay uh, I, th- I think the baseball because of the angles of the cameras i think that probably l- doesn't lend itself quite as well um w- any other observations uh did people look good did they look like mid-season form did it look like spring training the yankees look good the yankees look good yeah well so so mid-season form then for the mets um it's just it's gonna be really weird i mean i, I think what the um opening day is thursday um, I don't know. I, I have very mixed feelings about that. Um, are you going to still follow it though? Y- yeah, I will. But I just, I don't know. It's going to be very hard to, to sort of get us into it. I, I mean, you know, you listen to me now, right? Watch the Mets win like four of their first five. Like, oh my God, the Mets are like, so good. It is such a distraction. No asterisk, no asterisk. <laughs> um, a world series is a world series. I so, guess I gotta figure so out say the Astros. Yeah, darn right. Um, the, uh, the guys from law school that I still play fantasy baseball with every year, I, I got to connect them this week to find out, are we, are we doing this thing? I, I mean, I Thursday, the season starts on Thursday. Are there any major holdouts? Are, are, is, 
are all the stars playing or is anybody refusing to take part? I think there are some folks who are quarantining right now. I'm not sure there's yeah. anyone who's saying I'm not going to play the whole season. I think that's we're seeing more of that like on the NBA and NFL sides. Yeah, people say, well, I'm, I'm sure it seems like from the NBA side, there are people who just don't want to take the injury risk, I guess. Especially because like if you're on a team that's like basically out of it, like, you know, and you're not really, I don't know. Anyway. All right, let me just say, so the Spurs are one of these bubble teams that one of the few teams that have something to play for during this weird sort of warm up season. They're trying to get into that, that sort of ninth play in spot. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're, they start this thing off four games out. And there's four or five teams that are in the same spot. And so every one of them has to make up ground on whoever's, I think maybe Memphis is in the eighth spot in the West. It, they've got 10 games to do it. This just seems like it's not going to work very well. But worst of all, I mean, it's, all, it's, all it's all for Zion, right? Um, you know, the, uh, that's not my bag. But it may have to be my bag since the Spurs may be out. Maybe I should switch to New Orleans as my – next favorite nearby team because I'm not going Rockets. Um, the Spurs have LaMarcus Aldridge out because during the, uh, during the interregnum, he went ahead and had shoulder surgery. So, um, I mean, he was, he was basically everything to them. I don't see them probably closing the gap. And this will be the first time in, I believe, 22 years that the Spurs aren't in the playoffs. And I just – I'm at my wit's end. Uh, it just breaks my heart. And I'm still mad at Kawhi Leonard to blame him for the whole thing. What about you? Any uh, anything you're rooting for in the NBA? Chaos. Well, you'll get that, I'm sure. What about? Do you have an opinion on on whether the MVP should be based entirely on what happened before uh, spring break? Yes, it shouldn't be. Right. It should, it should count for whatever happens now. Up to the but, beginning of the playoffs. Okay. So, but if you had to pick right now, who is it? Are you, are you LeBron? LeBron. LeBron. Why LeBron over Giannis? Um. I just, I, I just, I think, I think I, it's close between them to me. I just think that like the West is harder and LeBron has had a, a, a heavier lift. Right. I mean, I just, you know, I feel like, I feel like the, the, the East set up for Jan for the Bucks to dominate this year. And so Giannis, yeah. I think is like more sort of, it's less surprising to me how well the Bucks did. Yeah. Well, that's for sure. Yeah. If you, if you link it to team success at all, um, of course he has a much weaker supporting cast, I would argue than mm-hmm. to put it mildly than LeBron. All right, well, I, well, I, well can't, I can't say anything positive about the Lakers. So, But by this time next week, we're going to have real live sports to talk about. So maybe that'll improve our, our moods. Or at least be my nice. moods. It will be nice. All right. All right. Well, we he is, he is at Bobby Chesney. I am at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Um, watch out for the little green men, everybody. Stay safe out there. Adios.